the State of the Union in a state of division. Well, let's finish the job. There's more to do. President Biden hits the road. There's a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. Challenging Republicans in two key battleground states on the issue of entitlements. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. Following a State of the Union that was unlike any other. Plus. Former Vice President Mike Pence is subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. Tuesday saw one of the rowdiest State of the Union speeches in recent memory. Republicans booed and heckled President Biden throughout the address, his first before a divided Congress with a GOP-controlled House. The divisions were crystal clear. The president touted his accomplishments in the big bills passed by Congress last year. He also urged bipartisanship to, quote, finish the job. It's a phrase he used 12 times during his speech. But Republicans, well, they shouted at him and called him, quote, liar when he accused them of seeking to make cuts to entitlement programs. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now. Right? They're not to be sponsored. We got unanimity. Quite a moment there. Um, after his speech, Arkansas's new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, also the former White House press secretary, she gave the Republican Party's response and pointedly criticized the president and Democrats. At 40, I'm the youngest governor in the country. And at 80, he's the oldest president in American history. I'm the first woman to lead my state and he's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob. Meanwhile, after his address, President Biden, he hit the road, taking his message to two key battleground states, Wisconsin and Florida. And while he hasn't officially announced he's running for re-election yet, President Biden offered a glimpse at what his 2024 message might sound like. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large for the 19th, and here in studio, Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, Leanne Caldwell, co-author of The Washington Post's early 202 newsletter and anchor for Washington Post Live, and Nicole Killian, congressional correspondent for CBS News. So thanks, all of you, for being here. Peter, I want to start with you. I know you've covered a number of State of the Unions. What sticks out about this one when you think about what President Biden was saying and, of course, those moments we played where Republicans were heckling him, almost walking a bit into what felt like maybe him baiting them a bit? I think that's exactly what was happening. When the White House wrote this speech, the aides identified two places in the speech where they thought Republicans might heckle him. Guess what? This is exactly what happened, the exact two places in the speech. So not only was President Biden ready for it, he was hoping for it. This is exactly what they wanted. They wanted him to look like the adult in the room, whereas the, the, the quarrelsome children are sitting there shouting and being rude and everything, and they got exactly what they wanted. And I think that the president, for a president whose you know, speeches are not always full of energy these days, he does have to sort of convince people that at age 80 he's still got the vigor in him, it was a good moment because he got to engage a foe and play off of them. 
And then we also played, of course, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who criticized him, talked about him being part of the woke mob. You also had former President Trump, who was a little mixed there. He said this message, this, this speech wasn't as terrible as it could have been in some ways, but he was also criticizing him, Peter. Yeah, look, you know, they're going to try to find what the traction is. Sarah Huckabee Sanders says it's all about woke culture issue issues, right? They didn't really talk about much else. But she said something else I thought was really interesting. She said several times it's time for a new generation of Republican leadership. Who was she talking to there? Mm. <laughs> Maybe her old boss, right? His, her old boss is 76. President Biden is 80. Neither one of them is a new generation guy. Yes, that's, a, that's, that's such an interesting point. Um, Nicole, what's interesting also was Speaker McCarthy, he had warned Republicans to behave. And you saw him shushing sometimes there. What does that tell you about Kevin McCarthy's sort of hold and grip on his party, but also the strategy for Republicans when you think about all the things that Congress has to get done? Oh, well, you know, my takeaway is welcome to my world. <laughs> I mean, I think for those of us who cover Congress, and I'm sure Leanne knows uh, very well, too, I mean, this is kind of the dynamic that we will likely deal with over the next two years. And I really don't think, even if it was a strategic move on the part of the White House. I don't think that it is something that comes with any surprise after we witnessed the speaker battle, which was quite contentious, where you had one lawmaker lunging at another. Uh, you know, if you look the week before the State of the Union, there was a very highly charged debate on the House floor uh, when Republicans tried to remove Ilhan Omar, a Democrat, from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where you had people like AOC trying to tell off Republicans. So it is a very a contentious Congress, a very divided Congress, and so certainly no surprises that it was as raucous as it was a Tuesday night. And so, uh, you know, I think in terms of Kevin McCarthy having to shush members, I mean, we saw it took him 15 votes to get the speakership. So, I mean, it does take some wrangling to try to keep his members in line. And it's a question I want to ask you and Leanne. I'll start with you, Nicole. The Medicare, Social Security cuts, President Biden says some Republicans want to do it. Um, you saw video this week from Mike Lee, um, Ron DeSantis, Ron Johnson talking on video years back about wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare. What's the truth here? Well, I mean, this is the third rail of politics, right? I mean, in terms of this dynamic of cutting entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, I mean, obviously, before uh, President Biden made the State of the Union speech, we saw Kevin McCarthy give a pre where he did say that Social Security and Medicare will be off the table. But at the same time, it is pretty nuanced because you have people like Rick Scott, for instance, who put out this big plan. Uh, recently, you know, in the last election cycle, where he suggested sunsetting Medicare and Social Security. So that is kind of where this notion of potentially cutting it comes from in part. Uh, and of course, many Republicans have since tried to distance themselves from that idea, including Senator Scott himself. So it is a lot of, it's in the weeds, I think, for a lot of people at home. Uh, but as you saw, the president try to leverage that opportunity to get everybody on record that we aren't going to touch this as part of these debt limit negotiations. And Leanne, what are your sources saying about this? I mean, that was quite a moment to see President Biden get Republicans and Democrats to stand up to say, we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, I, I mean, it really played into the president's hands. But I will say, I don't know if this is the end of the discussion on Social Security and Medicare. Maybe for the time being, Republicans have realized that this is very bad politically. It's going to be an issue in the 2024 presidential election as well. You have President Trump, who is also goading Republicans on the issue. He thinks that it shouldn't be cut. But then again, I interviewed Senator Kirsten Sinema yesterday, the new independent from Arizona, and she told me there's a bipartisan working group in the Senate 
addressing Social Security, and they plan to come out with a plan on ways to reform the system. So this is definitely not going to be the end of the discussion on those issues. Very, very interesting to hear that. And Aaron, you wrote this week about the State of the Union. You pointed out that President Biden didn't spend that much time or almost any time on talking about abortion or LGBTQ rights. Uh, he wasn't something that he wanted to lean in on. What are you hearing from sources, especially women and people who are impacted by these issues? Uh, you know, what the president was emphasizing on Tuesday night did matter. Part of that you could see in the guests that were in the gallery seated with the first lady. I think probably most among the most notable uh, were Tyree Nichols' parents, uh, Ravon Wells, who I spoke to ahead of the State of the Union, who was hoping that her presence there would really put a human face on the issue of police reform as they try to regain some sort of momentum to deal with that issue in a very uh, politically divided Congress that, that uh, stalled out on this issue. Last summer, uh, you saw uh, other black lawmakers had other family members in the gallery. Uh, the president did mention the word abortion for the first time in, in the State of the Union address, but kept those remarks brief, as well as a nod to transgender youth. And, and, and really, you know, I think uh, the activists that I spoke to, while they said that they were uh, heartened uh, by hearing uh, the president mention issues like uh, reproductive rights access, uh, LGBTQ rights and and also um, you know gun violence uh, they didn't the, the work is still unfinished and and that's why you have President Biden saying you know let's finish the job uh, but but mentioning those those types of things in a state of the Union speech does signal that they are priorities and it also signals that, that he understands perhaps the type of coalition that he's going to have to pull together if indeed he's running for re-election as we expect him to, to announce imminently. And Aaron, I want to ask you, I was looking at some Nielsen reports and it said that 27.3 million viewers tuned in. That's a drop of 29% from last year, meaning 29% less people in this country watched the State of the Union this year than last year. What does that tell you about the importance of this, the significance of the State of the Union versus the president going out there and going to these key battleground states? Well, I mean, there are, you know, many Americans who are kind of tuning in for the first time to what the administration has been doing. I mean, you just had a Washington Post ABC poll that said six in 10 Americans don't really feel like the administration is doing very much. They're not really aware of what the administration's accomplishments have been, even as you had President Biden kind of ticking off what, what uh, he sees as the administration's accomplishments in that State of the Union address. And I think that is why you also saw them immediately hitting the road, continuing to hammer that theme of finish the job on the road. President Biden in Wisconsin, in Florida, Vice President Kamala Harris being dispatched to Atlanta the very next day. Uh, you know, they're talking about infrastructure, the jobs that are coming, the opportunities that are available and the work that they still want to do on behalf of Americans. While you also have, uh, you know, Republicans casting, you know, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders in, in her response, uh, really leaning into to, to those culture wars in, in kind of a different sort of appeal to, I think, the working class voters that, that both of these parties are attempting to uh, try to harness headed into 2024. Very interesting. And Peter, the other thing that you pointed out to our producers, and I had to go back and actually double check, President Biden spent very little time talking about global issues, Ukraine, China, some of the things that we see as priorities in the, in the White House's agenda. Right. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, he, it was in inverse proportion to the amount of time he probably spends in private dealing with China and Ukraine, just to say two of them. And he didn't mention any others either. Turkey just had a monster, horrific earthquake. No mention of that. No mention of the Middle East, no mention of South America, no mention of North Korea. And I think it talks to you about how much this is a domestic-oriented, campaign-oriented speech. 
right? He rolled out a lot of things that are, are good for the progressive base, but they're never going to pass a Republican House. So why does he do it? To state a position to say, this is where I, I'm, I'm uh, fighting for, and if you want to take this issue to the voters, I'm happy to do it. That's his uh, re-election uh, uh, campaign speech. And Ukraine and, and, and China are not helpful to him in that regard. Most Americans, many Americans, don't want to talk about foreign affairs. They want to talk about what's happening here at home. And Leanne, I mean, talk to me a bit about what the, how Republicans view this. You think about the fact that their strategy was to sort of beat them up on the domestic issues. Um, when you think about 2024, but also even a little closer, the debt ceiling, um, what does that tell you about sort of the way that Republicans see these things? Well, Republicans are gearing up for a fight, right? We saw that in the, spe uh, the um, fight to uh, elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. The far right a faction of the party really imposed their priorities on McCarthy and on Republicans. And so they are prepared to make their demands. And one thing that actually surprised me with the president's speech is that I was actually expecting him to adopt Republican framing and focus on cutting deficit, focusing on the debt, but he didn't do that. That's something that President Obama actually did in 2011 in his State of the Union speech after he was shellacked in the midterm elections, the height of the Tea Party election or Tea Party movement where Republicans were focused on deficit cutting. Um, but Biden really avoided that and he kept the dis national and domestic discussion in his terms. And I would note that he also, I think, as somebody who covered him in 2020, I noticed he hearkened back to a lot of those similar themes that he raised during the campaign about trying to be a president for all Americans, not betting against America. So I think to Peter's point, and, and you know, we know that uh, the White House or, you know, those around the, the president were kind of looking at this address as potentially a soft relaunch for his campaign. And that was definitely notable in some of those phrases he uh, laid out. It was really a steady as she goes speech for unsteady times, right? He made the, the mood music of bipartisanship, work with me on this, we've done it together. But his point is, you work with me on my priorities, not I'm working with you on your priorities. He did not do what Obama or Clinton did in 1995, in part because he doesn't feel like he got a shellacking last fall, right? Even though they lost the House, they feel like they did better than they expected, and therefore they don't feel repudiated and don't feel the need to pivot to the middle in that sense. And it's interesting when you, when you think about sort of the fact that he didn't pivot to the middle. Um, Aaron, he, you talked about the fact that you spoke to Ravon Wells, who of course is the mother of Tyree Nichols, to go back to that issue. He talked about the talk, which of course is this conversation that black parents have with their black kids, mainly, mainly their black boys, but also their black um, daughters to say, here's how you can survive a police interaction. And he sort of said, I, haven't, I didn't have to have this talk with my kids. We have to think about the fact that we're living in a country where other people, black and brown families have to. What's the reaction been to that? I know you said that, that people want more reforms done, but I just wonder if, if people are touched or think that that might move any part of this. I, I do think uh, you know, the folks that I spoke to were struck by kind of the tone that, that President Biden struck in, in really humanizing uh, Ravon Wells and, and Rodney Wells, these parents who are still grieving. I mean, it was only a month after Tyree Nichols was beaten that they were sitting in that gallery. Uh, so these are still grieving parents, putting a face on that and even acknowledging, even though this was not his experience with his own children, trying to appeal to Americans that this is an issue that all Americans should care about and, and that all Americans should, should, should want, you know, police reform. Uh, you know, defunding the police was not the message that you heard 
uh, which was something that you know a, a lot of um, uh, folks uh, have been critical of, uh, were critical of in, in previous election cycles. But that was not the message uh, that President Biden uh, was was touting. I mean, really, it was it was so much of a happy warrior kind of stance in such stark contrast to that kind of bare knuckle brawler uh, style that you saw from the former president, who obviously is is definitely running again. Uh, but listen, uh, just because whether or not President Trump is a nominee, you still have these other could-be candidates, uh, Nikki Haley, who was expected to announce next week, the former uh, South Carolina governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, or uh, you know, or others who may not necessarily be acting in the style of Trump, but certainly embrace a lot of that rhetoric and, and some of the culture wars agenda that, that has definitely appealed to some number of those voters. And so... Uh, the contrast in styles, I think, was definitely on display. And that issue was a prime example of, of how you saw that playing out. Yeah, I want to say something about Tyree Nichols. I was in the gallery um, during the speech. And so I saw Tyree Nichols's mom. And during one of the standing ovations that she got from the entire chamber, she was such an and she was such a force. She stood up and to the Republicans who were also giving her a standing ovation, she said, thank you thank you, had her hands like this and said, we need to do something. And so it was a really poignant moment as well. And what President Biden did is when he talked about police reform in a very optimistic way, despite its uphill chances, passing on Capitol Hill, he didn't talk about policy or specifics, but he appealed to people's emotions and he, he um, and it was a different tactic than what he normally does. And we'll see if it's going to be effective. And you did see Kevin McCarthy too stand up for that line where he talked talked about greater accountability for officers, which was notable. And, you know, in talking to some folks after the speech, I think, you know, they also raised the point of how far uh, both the president and even Republicans might be coming along on this issue. Granted, it's still an uphill battle. And in part, I think it was intentional that the president wasn't that specific about police reform because they, quite frankly, lawmakers are still strategizing what that path should be, specifically the Congressional Black Caucus. So um, I think that's kind of why you heard him use more general upbeat phrasing to at least instill yeah. hope uh, with those parents in the room. And it's so, I mean, it was so hard to watch Rovan Wells because, like you said, it's 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 less than a month since her child died, and here she is standing and, and sitting in, in Congress. So Remarkable. it was a, definitely a, a tough moment. Um, I want to come to you, Peter, because part of sort of what, we, what we're talking about is this is something that is related in some ways to the vice president. She was, of course, a former prosecutor, but she's talked about criminal justice. You and your colleagues at The New York Times wrote a story that was a bit biting about the vice president. Talk about sort of the reporting there and Vice President Kamala Harris trying to find her her footing and, and her messaging here. Yeah. Look, she's two years in and she's still having trouble. And this is a, a, a worry for a lot of Democrats. All the people we interview for that story are Democrats, just to be clear. And their concerns with her is that, she, is that fair or not, she has not risen to the occasion, not the way they would like to see her do. Now, look, this is a big burden. First of all, it stinks to be vice president, all right? Every vice president goes through something like this. Then you add on the burden of being a first. A first this, a first that, first woman, first African-American, first Asian-American to be in that job. There are double standards almost certainly applying. Having said all that, the people who are concerned about her are the people who want her to succeed and feel like she hasn't, that she hasn't become visible enough. She hasn't been strong enough. She hasn't crafted an identity enough for herself. It may, it may matter less 
in the sense that we think we do now believe President Biden is going to run, yeah. and therefore she doesn't have to step up. But she could be a liability of the ticket if Republicans make the obvious argument, which is that voting for an 82-year-old president who would be 86 at the end of his second term means you may be voting for Kamala Harris to be president. If she's seen as a political liability, that's something that they don't want. So she has an opportunity. Uh, for now she won't be tethered to the Senate the same way she was because it won't be a 50-50 tie. She's telling her staff, I want to get out there more. I want to be on the road three times a week. I want to do stronger speeches. Abortion has been one area where she has found her voice, and they're looking for ways to kind of reboot. Aaron, jump in here. I know you obviously have been covering uh, the vice president very closely. Yeah, I mean, I did see her uh, during the midterms as a really strong surrogate, frankly, on the issue of abortion and really tying that to voting rights, tying it to the erosion of rights for many Americans in a way that resonated with, uh, you know, key coalitions, women, people of color, LGBTQ people who really see the stakes of, of our politics right now as existential for, for a lot of them. And so for her to carry that message uh, in the midterms in a way that, that uh, felt effective for a lot of those voters, uh, I think is something that you're going to see continue. Uh, you know, again, she was out in Atlanta where, you know, Raphael Warnock was just reelected uh, to the Senate in, in 2022 uh, in those midterms and, you know, shoring up black voters. You know, they didn't get voting rights legislation. Those folks are going to need to be shored up for 2024, uh, again, if, if, to put together the kind of coalition that uh, the Biden-Harris administration is going to need, need to, to win. Uh, to Peter's point, though, uh, you know, a large part of why we are even having this conversation about somebody who is a vice president is because the president, uh, because of the president's age and, and the reality that, you know, this is someone uh, who potentially could be president. And, and so that certainly is, is, is drawing a lot of scrutiny, although, you know, a lot of people that I, that I also talk to say, you know, is, is the scrutiny that she's getting, how does that jive with the reality on the ground with the voters that, that she's connecting with as she's yeah. beginning to get out there more? Yeah. And Leanne, I mean, there's so much we could say about Vice President, um, former Vice President Mike Pence. We have to make this hard turn, which is that he not only was there additional classified documents found in a home, um, his home after there were other documents that he handed over. There was also the fact that he was subpoenaed by the special prosecutor who's looking at the Capitol attack and the Trump's um, and the Trump administration and former President Trump's role in possibly doing that. What do you think this means politically? Politically for him, given the fact that it looks like he might run in 2024. Yeah, um, a lot of challenges for Mike Pence uh, <laughs> running for president, not only on the legal sense, but also uh, what sort of lane is he in? And I think that that actually dovetails in him being subpoenaed with the special prosecutor's case because uh, Mike Pence, we know his role on January 6th. It was standing up to Donald Trump. It was very different from what Donald Trump's is. Now he's out there and not willing to say very clearly and stake out that position very firmly of where he is. But this issue is going with this uh, with this investigation ongoing. It's going to be something he's going to have to talk about over and over again. Peter, in the minute yeah. we have left, break, break down this Mike <laughs> Pence debacle. Yeah, well, look, I think Leanne's got exactly right. I don't know where his lane is, right? The pro-Trump crowd were the ones who were saying, hang Mike Pence on January 6, 2021. The anti-Trump people are certainly not satisfied with his uh, uh, trying to straddle that line between, you know, being loyal and not. Having said that, I think to the extent that he wants to talk, being subpoenaed is the best way for him because it means he is being forced to do it is obligated to do it as a legal uh, duty, not that he is volunteering to do it and looking uh, like a you know disloyal Trumper. 
and a wild card for those who are watching at home. I'm going to ask Peter this. We shot down yet another thing in the air. Peter, yeah. what's the White House saying about uh, this? Another thing is the right way to put it because they're not telling us what this thing is. Is it a balloon? Is it an aircraft of some sort? They're saying it's an object. They don't know whose object it is. Is it China's? We don't know. Is it Russia's? We don't know. So they're going to try to find out more. They, they shot it down over the water just off the Alaskan coast. It's frozen there, so they think that they can get a lot of the debris and analyze it, figure out what it was. It's not the same thing that was a, we saw with the Chinese balloon. It's smaller. It's not, it doesn't have the same uh, look to it. They try to figure out what it is. Well, I mean, every single week, it's like the Chinese spy balloon, something in the air. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, but clearly I could ask more questions about that. Thank you so much to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And be sure to tune in to PBS News Weekend for the latest from, the, from Turkey and Syria, following, of course, that recent deadly massive earthquake. And finally, three words for this weekend's Super Bowl, fly, Eagles, fly. I said it. I'm Yemi Shalsendor. Good night from Washington.